to wait till the leaves got here because first thing we're going to cover is uh, about what it means for God to relent. Yeah, and I just thought, well, I can't, I obviously can't cover that until I get here, so now we basically will get started. So we would then will uh, start in 1 Samuel 15, and then we'll move on into uh, new material. I didn't really even, this morning I really didn't even, going over my messages, finish chapter 16 because I knew there's no way we'd get to it. Cause I, I, was, I stopped out halfway last time, so, anywho. Uh, we were in chapter 15, and of course this is where uh, Saul had done partial obedience. He was supposed to destroy all the Amalekites, every person and every animal, and he saved the best animals supposedly for sacrifice, and we have this great... A passage in verses 22 through 23 has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen to the fat of rams for rebellion is in the sin of divination and a presumption is in an, an, is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord he has also rejected you from being king. And so uh, by way of review then, to kind of get us up to where we are now, we saw that all mankind is the Lord's, and he can do with as he pleases, including ending our lives early, and we dealt a little bit as we have often with the command of God to destroy a whole uh, people group, the Amalekites. He has the right to do as he will, but of course the Amalekites were exceedingly sinful people as well, which was primarily why that took place. The Lord decides what a life would be used for and all its parameters. And so, you know, Saul was told that this is how you are, what you are to do, and he did not do that. He felt like, well, I kept some of these animals back because they would make good sacrifices, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, and you know, when the Lord says something, then that is our uh, command. So, as we just read, obedience that is partial is not obedient. And as an aside, I would just this is something I learned years and years ago. Your children are not obeying if it isn't immediately and fully. I remember uh, when I first kind of was learned this concept that there was they had to uh, do what they're told immediately, completely, and with the right heart attitude. And as far as obedience before the Lord, we understand that the right heart attitude, which is kind of what a solve problems here. But as parents, we understand that it takes time, and, we, and, and good discipline tries to develop the right attitude. Why do, is this important for you to obey and to, to bring the Lord into it? But it just initially, if you, you cannot accept obedience after you've gone, you know, you, you threaten them over and over again, and they do it half-heartedly. No, it, what I expect is immediate obedience, and, and everything I've told you to do. And, and that is, I think to me, it's imperative that you, a parent understands that and does not accept an attitude of, "Well, I'll do it what, what I do," or "I've got to be told ten times before I do it," and all that stuff. Absolutely not. Or you just set yourself up and them up. Problem. It is. And again, so we, we, 
obedience as the Lord expects it, a parent should seek to develop that in their child. Right? That's why it's not just me up here giving you what I feel is good parental attempt, uh, 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 pointers. We're getting this from Scripture. It is wicked then because it is not taking the Lord seriously and setting yourself uh, as more important when you say, Lord, I'll obey you as I see fit or mostly all this kind of stuff. It is just not taking the Lord seriously. <clears throat> and so, the sacrifice that the Lord accepts and is pleased with are those from the heart. You cannot perform religious actions alone and think that we have pleased the Lord or made him our debtor. See, that's where that's Saul's problem. He has done partial obedience and figures that, well, as long as I make these animal sacrifices, the Lord is okay. As if the Lord needs in any way that animal sacrifice. Those animal sacrifices were to teach of, of how redemption works and what the Messiah is going to do. The Lord is not pleased with them unless they are given with a good attitude of wanting to serve the Lord and so forth and, and given by faith. Religious actions, rituals, is means nothing if there's not a heart in it. <clears throat> so we'll stop there uh, as far as review. And then I just wanted to kind of finish some thoughts on, on this before we move into uh, this idea of God relenting. Uh, in his comparison in verses 20, verse 23a, he goes further by redefining religious, religious ritual that does not reflect a worshipful heart, and he says that is rebellion. In other words, that's pagan idolatry. It's sin. Uh, one thing that describes the most pagan religions is that they assume that one can make up for bad actions by some performance, some ritual of, of some sort, and that as long as one continues to perform, they can keep sinning, uh, and all will be well. And that that is a, a very pagan thing, and is one reason, and there's a host of reasons, though, why Catholicism is not really a Christian religion. Because they believe that they can go to the confessional and a man can forgive your sins and then you can go right back out and do what you want to do. There obviously is no changed heart. It just misses the point entirely. And, and I used to live, uh, work, excuse me, with the Catholics uh, up in Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, they made no bones about it. They would just live like the devil for the week, in the, but they get that confessional, took care of it, and they're right back to the same thing. And, you know, the world sees that. Of course, that is, they are the world, but certainly the, the non-religious person sees that and knows something's wrong, right? So true Christianity is different on two fronts from that type of, of, of paganism. First of all, we rest in Jesus' one-time sacrifice, one offering to atone for our sins. It's not something that we do on a reoccurring basis, whether it's the Mass or whatever. Um, Christ did it once and for all. Uh, secondly, saving faith comes with the indwelling Holy Spirit and the new nature, so that from now on we have hearts uh, we serve because we have a new heart, which, again, all this... This idea of having the slate cleaned every week denies or ignores the fact that we are supposed to have a new heart. And there's something wrong with someone who would live like that. So the Christian life 
isn't reduced to getting God off our backs so we are free to live according to the bondage of sin, right? Which is what Saul is doing here, what the, what the confessional is all about. It's, it's like, well, I don't want to suffer, so I'll get my sins forgiven, but I'm not in any way going to give up a, a life that dishonors the Lord. The Christian life is opening our eyes to the glory of God, removing the guilt and penalty of sin, and also its power so that we can we are free to serve and worship him as he deserves to be. Not by offering that which we don't want, as, as Saul was doing, uh, you know, just, you know, and thinking we're throwing God a bone in some way. So not listening to God's word, we cannot say, well, that's just being human. Uh, it's a failure. It's, it's a misunderstanding. No, what, what the text here says is that's arrogance. And that's rebellion. <clears throat> when we don't take God seriously, we make no effort to serve and obey him. When we fail to believe and obey God's word because we, it's, uh, because we don't, we don't like the ramifications, um, is, is not, a, we cannot say, well, that's an al- alternate religious understanding. You know, it, 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 we love to, all of a sudden, when we're trying to excuse our sin, well, the Bible's not clear on that. You hear that a lot. When, when the Bible, God has clearly spoken, and but all of a sudden now we have what maybe what someone says theological pluralism. That is, well, that's your understanding. This is my understanding. And very often when you hear that, it's someone's trying to make an excuse. But what we're learning here is that if you reject God's word, He's going to reject you. You know, Saul learns this very uh, starkly. It's interesting that he refers to divination or spiritism as an example of rebellion. But if you think about it, a rebellion is rejecting God's authority. And so looking to spirits for guidance is, is the same thing, whether it be your horoscope, the psychic network, you know, and all that kind of, I guess, I don't know if this psychic network even still a thing. Back in the 80s, and it was huge. Uh, but it's, it's all the same thing. And I, no doubt there are Christians who dabble in that. They don't, they don't realize what they're doing. You need to look at the horoscope. Um, is, uh, you're, 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 you're playing around with something that is completely anti-God, completely rebellious to everything that God is. And so, uh, you know, again, look at what God says about those things. God says, making the point that this, these are serious sins. Okay, so. Um, what do we make of verses 11, 29, and 35? Let's read them uh, real quickly. The Lord says, Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Saul was angry and cried to the Lord all night. Verse 29, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should regret. Well, that sounds a little contradictory. Then, of course, 35, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So what do we make of this? We know, of course, that God doesn't do wrong, 
So he doesn't repent in the sense that we do. He does not regret. In fact, verse 29, that's, and I think that's one reason why verse 29 is there, because 11 and 35, taken by themselves, would make it, you could make a case that, well, God did this, and, you know, I wish I hadn't have done that. That's kind of how we think of regret. I wish that hadn't have happened. And yet, uh, 29 reminds us that, no, God is not a God who can make mistakes, so he wouldn't be God would be the God of the Bible. So whatever 11 and 35 are saying, it's not that God was sorry he had done something, that that course of action really wasn't good and I wish I had done something else. If we know it's not saying that, right? Over in uh, Genesis 6, 6, it says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. The word sorry there is the same word as relent. So the Lord relented, or uh, and again, it, a Greek word or a Hebrew word can often have more than just one uh, mean concrete meaning, right? And so the whole idea here is to be grieved, to grieve over something, to feel bad about something, and that's clearly how I think that helps us understand what's going on here. It wasn't that the, the God didn't see how evil men were going to be, and He's just sorry. That he created him. It's that he was grieving over the sin of mankind. And if you think about it, we would expect no different from God, a holy God, to be, to grieve over sin, to be sorry about man's rebellion. But that doesn't necessarily follow then that he made a mistake, that he didn't see it coming. And we'll try to deal with that. Um, I, I think this, like Genesis 6, 6, kind of helps us understand what's going on here. In this verse, the point is the pain that it causes God's heart, a holy God. The idea is that God is not nonchalant about sin. It does cause, and rightly so, a strong reaction because of his holy nature, and it's confirmed, I think, in our text. God was grieved over Saul's sin. It, it, it was sorry. He was sorry of, of, of over it in that sense. And so 11 and 35 are showing us God's sorrow over sin, not his lack of foresight. Because we know that God ordains all things to come to pass. Right? He is ordained that sin would enter into the world for his purposes, to receive glory in that. And yet there would be something completely wrong about God, right, if he was unmoved by that. Like, you know, uh, well, you know, I, I want, I've allowed sin to enter the world, but, you know, I don't care about it. Whatever. It's, all, it's all part of my plan. And no, that's not how God is. He's a holy God, and so he uh, abhors sin. He grieves over sin. And so that's what's going on here. And no doubt, I think, like I said, verse 29 is inspired to make this point, to get our attention, in fact, all three of these verses, to get our attention, first of all, that we had better look at rebellion as God does, because there's serious consequences if you don't. God is not impassive. He brings up a whole other subject on the impassibility of God, which comes into play here a bit. Um, but God is not impassive towards sin. He does not sit there because there is the idea is and well 
Impass- the impassibility of God is the idea that God is not subject to suffering, pain, or involuntary emotion. Because God cannot be taken by surprise. Now, I believe that God has emotions. I, I, don't, I don't think I, you can get around that from Scripture. But it is not that he didn't see something coming, so all of a sudden, oh, and he, and he gets angry. Like we Sometimes something happens and we get angry all of a sudden. Well, because something surprised us. We didn't see it coming, so we might have an involuntary emotion. Obviously, God does not have that. Many have taken the idea, the biblical idea of the impassibility of God, as I just read, that he's not, he can't all of a sudden feel pain, he can't all of a sudden change in any way, right? He can't suffer, he's God, and he can't have these involuntary emotions, and they take that and say, well, God can't ever change, so he can't be happy one moment, sad the next. And now we start to get off into things that we really don't understand. And a lot of damage is being done even today in this area. And I don't have time to get into it and I don't know how profitable profitable it would be. But a lot of division. Because we have decided that the oneness of God, the simplicity of God, means that God cannot be moved. He cannot change his actions. And there's some problems with that. And so I, I won't get into that any more than that. But with a little thought, this reminds us that God, a God who both regrets our sin and yet does not regret allowing sin to enter, is a God that we can worship. It is a God that is above us. It's a God that we don't fully understand. And what happens is that some men who are smart, no doubt, brilliant, we could even say, start thinking about these things, and they start to develop concepts that might or might not be correct, but they go, as Calvin said, we should be very careful to not go beyond what the scriptures say. Jonathan Edwards is kind of well known for having to kind of doing this. He was so brilliant that his mind would go, start trying to develop concepts that weren't really developed in scripture and you end up speculating and sometimes you go off into error. And so we have to be very careful there. It doesn't bother me that God is cannot change and yet he can regret something that he saw coming. Because I think the Bible very clearly says he does. And our, this text would be one of those. Yet he is neither fickle in his ways or indifferent in his responses. He is both firmness and feeling. Therefore, I believe it is no accident that both uses of this word are found in the same text, so that we might not fully understand God and his emotions and how he works necessarily, but to have some idea of what's going on here. Both Samuel and the Lord grieved over Saul's sinfulness, but... God never does wrong, so he cannot regret that he made Saul king. It was part of his plan, and yet, as Saul goes off into rebellion and sin, should not the holy God uh, feel sorrow and grief over that sin? Remember, the word relent 
and regret can mean regret, sorrow, grief. It, it, you know, it, it, can, it can mean all those things. And so in our text, we learn of the sovereignty of God and the true nature of worship and service. Uh, you know, in these things. So to me, it's a great passage because it, there's so much here for us to think about. <clears throat> uh, a couple of more verses that might help us a little bit in this area. Well, actually, I meant to already read these four more verses. First of all, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it, or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So, Whatever we read here in First Samuel, this lets us. This is a clear statement that God does not change His mind, and whatever He has determined to do, He will do because it is a right purpose. Ezekiel twenty four fourteen, I am the Lord; I have spoken it; it shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. Again, relent in this particular. Hey, I will not, uh, I cannot feel sorry or be sorry for what I've done because what I do, it must be perfect. God cannot make a mistake, right? So according to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged declares the Lord. So there is good insight there because what we see here is that when God sets up parameters and we cross those parameters and we do not obey, then God says, my attitude towards you is going to change. See, there's a lot of guys who, oh, no, 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 God can never change. He's immutable. He, he doesn't have emotions, uh, you know, and all this. So, God can never change. But the problem is that they, they're forgetting that God can create a time and God works in time. And so, God has determined that these, this is sin and that if you sin, you will I will judge you, and then if that happens, in time, God will change his attitude towards you, or his actions towards you in time. And that doesn't mean that God has changed, because he has ordained all those things to come to pass. So, for instance, Jonah 4 is a good example. Verse 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from danger. We've already seen two places where God says, I do not relent. And yet we've seen also where places where God does relent, and Jonah here says this, I knew that you were a God who relents from disaster. Clearly he's not saying, I knew that you were a God who Maybe started a course of action and realized that this wasn't good and so you changed your plan. No, he's saying that he knew that God had told the Ninevites, if you repent, in other words, well, first of all, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. The first thing Jonah told the Ninevites is in 40 days you shall be destroyed, right? Yet, if you repent, God's actions towards you will change. And that's what Jonah is saying there. I knew that you were a God, that if they obeyed your voice and repented, you would not destroy them, but you would spare them. I knew you were a God like that. You are a merciful, kind, compassionate God. And so it's not that God has changed. It's that the parameters that he has set to the Ninevites were met, 
And so he keeps his word, right? Then lastly, in Joel uh, 2.3, and rend your heart, and then notice the similarity here, this is about repentance. And rend your heart and not your garments. It goes along with our with saw too, right? God doesn't want you to just rip your uh, garments and, and heap ashes over your uh, head, which was a sign of repentance. It's often what they did when they repented. Nothing wrong with that. But God says, make sure that it's a reflection of your heart, not just your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So we have to be very careful that we don't try to box God into he never changes and he, he's, he's this unemotional detached being uh, he's not like that now that doesn't answer every question we have but the Bible lets us know what we need to know about these things so in one sense it means to be sorry and in another sense it means to change one's actions due to another's actions to relent clearly he isn't he hasn't made a mistake by allowing some disaster. It, it means he will remove the disaster if there is confession. So we need to not trip up over uh, this being used of God. And like I said, I'm glad that while a perfect God allowed sin into the world, he did so to glorify himself by changing his actions and his attitude, right, and his disposition uh, towards those who repent. And that's, that's the gospel. We're under the wrath of God. If through faith we repent, God removes his wrath from us. Right? So it's not that God is a changes and he's fickle. This is who God is. And he's doing what he said he would do. And it's amazing how people can really get tripped up over these things. So, this uh, is uh, a great passage, and I hope that maybe at least gives you some uh, measure of understanding what's going on there as we move on to chapter 16. <clears throat> well, let's stand and, and uh, read the first few verses here. This is David who's uh, going to be anointed by Samuel in place of Saul. This is an anointing. This is God identifying the next king. David is not king just because he's been anointed. That, that will happen uh, just like any king. You know, they'll be recognized by the people. There'll be a, a ceremony of sorts like that. But this is God telling them who the next king is going to be, more or less, when he's anointed. <clears throat> Verse 1. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have gone to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. He came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to 
sacrifice. In other words, had he just told them, I've come to anoint a new king, word would have gotten out and all sorts of problems would have happened, right? So he says, well, uh, all you need to know is I've come to offer sacrifice. That's kind of what God told him to do. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. But when they came, he looked on Eliab, the oldest, and thought, surely the Lord's anointing is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And he may be seated. Uh, of course, he all of Jesse's sons come before him, and the Lord rejects every one of them, and Samuel says, well, do uh, you have any more sons? And he said, well, yeah, the youngest is David. He's out there tending sheep. You know, he's a youth, probably a teenager at that time. And uh, Samuel says, well, go get him. And sure enough, that's the one that the Lord wants. And uh, so he is anointed. And we'll kind of, that's probably as far as we'll get today. Um, but before I move on to chapter 16 also, I wanted to just consider a few things that, uh, how chapter 15 uh, finishes. Um, we, we see here that Saul repents, uh, yet he does not repent. He, he realizes he's done wrong, but uh, he from verse 24, for instance, it says in, in chapter 15, verse 24, Saul says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your word, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. The problem here is that we, we understand that he, it's kind of like Saul has walked the aisle. And he's gotten right. You know, I've repented of my sin. Now, let's, let's move on. And there's not been any change in his heart. There's not, it's not true repentance. And outwardly, we wouldn't necessarily see that. And someone can repent, and we won't know if it's really a heartfelt thing or not. But you got to remember that all this is taking place uh, in chapter 13 as well. Saul has uh, partially obeyed the Lord. And, uh, and, of course, what we're seeing here is that it's a pattern of disobedience. And so I think it's one thing that reminds us is that when we see someone seemingly never getting victory over sin, he repents, and then he falls right back into it, and then he repents. You, you've seen their, their, their actions speak louder than their words, that, that something's wrong here. And this, I think that's the reason why, you know, we, we say, well, why didn't God forgive him? Well, I don't think it was true repentance. And this was this was just saw realizing he got caught and trying to move on. And so there in verse 25, by Samuel's response, we see that he realized that Saul merely is admitting guilt, but there's not been any true repentance here. Where when he says, um, verse 26, and Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. So, um, we see, he realizes that, that there's not many true repentance and, and the Bible if it's clear about anything is that true repentance is when we turn our back from something unto the Lord 
It doesn't mean that we can't fall into those sins. You know, there's some things that we battle the rest of our days, right? We understand that. But we know in our heart whether we truly repented, we're truly sorry for that, and seek to do right or not. And so, it seems like Saul is kind of using the sacrifice as like a confession. He says, okay, yes, I did wrong. Let's forget it and move on. And uh, I've, I've seen this in a case of, of adultery and things have taken place in people's lives. And the uh, adulterer uh, said, okay, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I won't do it again. And let's forget about it. Well, wait just a minute. What you've done is serious. This isn't something that can just be forgotten. And, and we want, you know, we, in dealing with someone like that, you say, okay, what brought this on? You know, that's what you need to deal with. It's not a, it's not enough for you to say, well, I'm sorry. You, a true uh, repentance is what in the world is going on in my life and in my heart that I would do this to begin with. And I've seen guys who, or big girls, who, uh, yes, I understand it, and, and want to deal with their heart, understanding me too. And I've seen people who say, uh, that's none of your business. I, I've said I'm sorry. Now, uh, it's between me and my wife, and, and don't you worry about it. Anymore. And that's clearly a sign of unrepentance, and it usually crops up pretty obviously soon afterwards. So anyway, just throw that in there for what it's worth. So anyway, with Saul, there's no real sorrow for the Lord, but his concern seems to be that he will have the respect of the people. Uh, and that's all that he really cares about. And that's certainly a legitimate concern for a king, right? You want to be respected. You want to have their support. But it's not the primary reason. In other words, what we do, we aren't, you know, our spiritual duties to the Lord aren't done with what will people think of me. It's not that that's unimportant what people think about us sometimes. Well, it's, it, but it's, am I right with God? And that's the problem here with Saul. We must obey God rather than man. And Saul has already shown that people ruled him more than the Lord. His real need was that what God thought about him, not what the people thought. And he clearly is too proud to repent. And, but seems to be to bend over backwards to uh, do whatever the people want him to do. And so I, I think, again, there's just some things that we don't want to, we can uh, refer to before moving on. So in verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 1, we are reminded that God will provide for his people. He will not leave them without direction and protection. Yes, Saul has failed, but the uh, Lord says, you know, we know this was part of my plan. Now it's time for you to go and anoint the king whose heart is unlike Saul. Saul remember, Saul was tall, head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He was a you know, beautiful man or the good looking man or whatever, a strong military leader. The people were drawn to that. But it wasn't God's choice in a sense. In other words, God gave them what they wanted. It says, now it's time for you to have a man after my own heart. Uh, and, and, and we'll see here that David had a heart with a disposition towards God. And so he's going to make a better leader than anything, any outward attribute that another man might have because the heart is of primary consideration as we just read here and we'll deal with that in our remaining time which isn't much so 
course, God is a true king, and he never loses control over his kingdom. And so Saul, was part that was all part of his plan, but now that time is over. So we notice that even though this was a bad time for Israel, uh, God tells Samuel to move on. I kind of like this, that, that uh, God says to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? Look, there are things going on, and let's just you know, kind of put it in our day. There are things going on in our country that we find appalling whether it be political things, moral things, right, the divisions, all the sin. And we all know, this is one of the huge topics over the last couple of years, for instance, just how consuming all that can be. And here's a good verse that reminds us, okay, look, it's not that those things aren't unimportant necessarily, but we have been put here to be constant, to serve the Lord, to live in the kingdom, to, to have a church, to be evangelistic, we, our duty with the Lord doesn't change, no matter how things might be falling apart. You know, and it, so, as again, it's not that those things aren't unimportant and that we can't be engaged in them, but it, it can never, uh, stop us from doing our duty for the Lord. And so I, I like that verse one because it, it's just a reminder to Samuel, look, yes, this was, I understand how you feel about Saul and, and what, the, what, how this, how this affects the country, the nation, but, okay, I've got work for you to do, so let's get at it. <clears throat> it's one thing to be upset over the circumstances of life, even the ones that are worth being upset over, but it's wrong to let them stop you from doing your duty. So, this should be on our minds every day when we get up in the morning that, well, uh, I've got to keep myself focused. I, I, have, I can't be sidetracked by things going on around me in that sense. And also in verse 1, I like Samuel's disposition in the sense that he was upset over that. But what was he upset over? He was upset over a bad moral king and how it was going to affect God's people. He was upset over something that had to do with God's glory, with obeying the Lord and so forth. And of course, remember the covenant. In their situation, the constitution wasn't Ten Commandments was the law of Moses. That, that was that was extremely important, and, and it had everything to do with the worship of God. What he wasn't upset over, and I'm just I'm doing this just as a way of comparison, so that we can stop and say, okay, now when I get upset, what do I get upset over? He was not upset because his team didn't win, right? Some people, it's like. It's like that's everything, and, and they go way. It means way more to them than what it should. And believe me, you know, I I've been a huge sports fan. Uh, not having last couple of years to put into pretty much all that, but but I understand it. But but I also see people who are just eat up with it. He's not upset because I'm a dent in his car. It doesn't say that those things don't affect us, but. Let's make sure our priorities are right. That's all I'm saying there. And so God, and we'll stop here. We won't even get to uh, the beat of this in 6 and 7. But notice here that God gives him a cover, cover story so won't have to lie. And I think some people would say, well, is it, wasn't he being misleading there? Because he was going there to anoint David. And, and he said, but he says, I'm going to make a sacrifice. But he was going to make a sacrifice. And everybody knew that had Samuel said he was going to anoint a new king, that Saul would have been right there and 
would have tried to kill him and, and, all, and David and whoever else. And uh, so, obviously, it wasn't the right time, the right thing to say at that point. And we're periodically reminded that God generally works through the ordinary means that he's given us. It is not his usual way to do miracles and to perform direct revelation. And I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians, because they read about this in the Bible so often, they they feel like, well, if there's not a, what to me looks like a miracle or some direct revelation, some God moment sometimes is how they would phrase that, well, then, they, you know, they don't feel like anything's happened. No, God doesn't work like that in New Testament times because we have the full revelation. He doesn't need to. He has created us in the world, natural laws. He's given us common sense and reasoning to, as we talked about in 1 Corinthians 6, to take all the things that are going on in my life and take the principles of God's word and work them out with fear and trembling. I don't need direct revelation. I don't need obvious miracles. Uh, I have, the Bible has spoken to me about all what God can do. And what he is doing. God is doing things behind the scenes that I can't see. And the Bible tells me that I don't need to see it with my eyes to have faith. And, and I think a lot of people struggle with that. They, they want the Christian life to be just like the, the life that uh, some of these Old Testament characters live. And they want to see all the miracles. And they want, they want God to, to speak to them. And the problem with that is that you don't need faith to do that. And uh, you just kind of need God tell you what to do and you just do it and you have to work these things out in your own mind and, and apply principles of God and meditate on God's word and how does this work in this situation it is extremely difficult compared to God just telling you, you know, God just speaking to you in the dream so uh, just something to keep in mind he created this world but we are never meant to be robots God expects us to use common sense and not necessarily do things openly if it'll be problems. And I understand that this is a subject that can, you know, kind of open up a whole can of worms. Sometimes, though, Christians are covert. Now, again, there are some people who say any kind of sleight of hand dishonest like that is lying. So, but you think about what's going on for 2,000 years, what's going on in uh, China right now. Christians do not just openly say, oh, I'm a Christian and, you know, God's going to take care of everything. No, they, they are covert. There's a sense of, there's a, a, a measure of deception. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean you can openly deny the Lord and deny who you are, but, you know, there's a sense of, of, of being covert and it takes some thought. You know, I think you have to be very careful of being so simplistic that I can't do anything that doesn't, is it completely honest. And I realize how that sounds. I realize that the problem is not an easy answer, but we see it here. God says, look, I realize here, so don't tell them openly what you're doing. We're going to have another thing you're going to do, and that's what you're going to concentrate on. And you can just take it for what it's worth. I'm not going to try to apply it. That, that is what happened, and, and I think that gives us good things to talk about, to discuss, to think.
think about, and uh, that's good. That's good for us sometimes to not have everything so easy that we don't have to think about things, right? So anyway, I'll stop there today and give us enough to worry about. We thank Heavenly Father for your love to us this day, and we pray that you might uh, speak to us, that you would help us to grow in our faith, our understanding uh, of our God, and how magnificent you are, how above us you are, and yet how consistent you are. You have clearly spoken in your word, and we are without excuse. And give us hearts that love you above all else, we pray in Jesus' name.